This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash be here now. Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Creativity, Spirituality, and Making a Buck podcast on the Be Here Now Network with David Nickturn. My name is Michael Cammers, your host, sometimes podkick, and intro-outro monologist. It's a pleasure to be here with you, and all of us at CSM sincerely hope this episode finds you as well as can be. And so, welcome to episode number 28, Dharma for Difficult Times with Stephen Cope. This episode is a tough one to nail down on the soundbite, so I'm going to set the table quickly and then we'll get right to what is a very compelling and far-ranging conversation between David and our guest, Stephen Cope, who happens to have been trained classically as a dancer, pianist, and psychotherapist, and yogi, and whom currently is a prolific author with an upcoming book entitled Dharma for Difficult Times a book which this episode happens to be named after. However, spoiler alert, this podcast is much broader than that, so please release any expectations, and I apologize for setting up said expectation. So how about a little bio action for our guest? Stephen Cope is a best-selling author and scholar who specializes in the relationship between the Eastern contemplative traditions and Western depth psychology. Among his seminal works in this area are Yoga and the Quest for the True Self, The Wisdom of Yoga, and The Great Work of Your Life. And as previously stated, he has a book coming out in January 2022 on Hay House entitled Dharma in Difficult Times. For almost 30 years, Stephen has been scholar-in-residence at the renowned Kripalu Center, the largest center for the study and practice of yoga in the Western world. In addition to his role as scholar-in-residence, Stephen is the founder and former director of the Kripalu Institute for Extraordinary Living, one of the world's most influential research institutes examining the effects and mechanisms of yoga and meditation with a team of researchers from Harvard Medical School, University of Connecticut, Pennsylvania, and many more. Okay, that's enough for the intro. We've set the table. Now enjoy the meal. Episode number 28, Dharma for Difficult Times with David and Stephen Cope. Enjoy. Okay. Yep. Welcome. I'm here today with Stephen Cope, uh, who I've known for quite a long time, but intermittently. <laughs> and uh, we've always had a nice, friendly uh, relationship through Kapalo and through uh, the yoga scene. And um, he's going to fill us in a little bit on what he's been up to, which is what I'm curious is to catch up so we can all catch up together uh, yeah. with Stephen Cope. Stephen, thanks you thanks for coming on to the uh, Creativity, Spirituality, and Making a Buck podcast. Great, great to be with you, David, and so nice to see you. 
after what well, it's been a few years, I think, since I've seen yeah. you. I saw you at Kripalu most uh, most recently. Yeah. I like to say it's called creativity, spirituality, and making a buck. Pick two. Pick two? Yeah. Oh, pick two. Okay. <laughs> I would say probably, as probably most people do, creativity and spirituality. But I'm not <laughs> making a buck. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> yeah. I mean, obviously, the idea of it is... Um, you know, can you whistle and chop wood at the same time uh, in in rhythm? So, so many people in the in our environment, you know, have some have struggled with livelihood, some have yeah. really thrived. Just the balance of those en- elements and energies in whatever order you want to uh, talk about them. But I'd like to take a minute and just we just started talking before we uh, got on and about kind of how you frame your own existence. Yeah. How do you think of yourself? And you started talking. I said, wait a minute, let's get that onto the podcast. <laughs> okay. So, um, yeah, I mean, David, I'm, I'm 72 years old, so I've had quite a bit of time to think about it. And increasingly, I, I see myself primarily as a writer. So writing really runs in my family. My grandfather was a writer. My mother was a poet. And I've, I've always loved writing. And um, and, you know, you said earlier, pick one. And I, I think there is a way in, in life in which you do have to pick. You do have to pick one or, or maybe two. Um, and, and I would say that writing is what um, really, really gets me up in the morning. Secondly, mm. is, that, is that literal? Do you write early in the morning? I do. Not early because I'm not an mm. early riser, but I'm in my office right now and I, I show up here almost every day of the week, between eight and nine sometime. And yeah, I usually work all morning. Um, I I usually show up. I I have a deal with myself, David, which is that um, I call it suit up and show up, that I will show up. And if I don't feel like writing, I don't have to, but I will show up here in the the writing studio. And the truth is, usually I, I do feel like writing. Um, I don't I don't have the kind of blocks that I hear other writers talking about, thank God, and I hope I didn't just jinx myself. But um I uh I really I enjoy it. So um yeah, I usually I usually write every morning and uh and, and it does get me up. And then the second thing I would say is 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 a yogi. I I love yoga, practice yoga. I love to learn about it. I love to incorporate it into my life. And, and by yoga, I mean kind of capital Y, not just postures, which I do, but of course, meditation and um, the rest of it, all, you know, the um, ethical practices and the, the whole thing. So um, that's second. Third is teaching. I, I also love to teach. And I think I'm a, a reasonably good teacher, but I'm also a very kind of anxious person. So teaching, I, I teach quite a bit with Sharon Salzberg, for example. So with Sharon, you just, you put the quarter in and she teaches, right? With me, <laughs> I, I think hard, I prepare, I get all my Dharma talks prepared. I, you know, I'm, I'm a wasp, David. So <laughs> thing about, about being hosting people and when you're hosting people, you better, have plenty of food and um, be on your best behavior. So it's just so bred in uh, that teaching teaching is a 
uh, it's a challenge for me. It's a little bit of a sacrificial dharma for me. But me- meaning that um, <clears throat> it doesn't roll off your back. It's something you have to kind of prepare for and exactly lean into um, to to feel comfortable being there. I do. I do. I, I have the sense that when there are 50 or 100 people in front of me, I want them to, to get something that's cogent and that I've prepared and, and thought through. And, and I, I actually get pleasure out of the preparation, but I'm kind of anxious enough as a person to, um, you know, still have the, the remnants of that anxiety that everybody feels when you're in front of a, a room of people. But, you know, I've been at Kripala now for 32 years, and I've been teaching for almost that time. Wow. And um, so I've learned, I've learned how to manage it, basically, right? I, I reframe anxiety as excitement and all the mm-hmm. stuff mm-hmm. you're supposed to do. Stephen, how did you get to Kripala in the first place 32 years ago? Yeah. And for those, of the, for those who don't know, maybe just say a little bit about what Kripala is. Hmm. Everybody might not know. Absolutely. So... Kripala Center for Yoga and Health is in Stockbridge, Massachusetts, up in the beautiful Berkshires. And it's I, I'm pretty sure it's the largest residential yoga center in America. It's housed in a beautiful old, well, not beautiful, it's housed in an old um, Jesuit monastery and um, was founded in 1983 in outside Philadelphia and, and moved to Stockbridge subsequently. It's It, it hosts... Um, almost 50,000 people a year now in, in yoga and meditation retreats and wow. personal growth programs and dietary programs and so forth. Um, we're a very large retreat center. And, mm-hmm. um, and, and we have this building that the Jesuits laid out with lots of big rooms and small rooms that are like monk cells where people can stay. Um, I was attracted to it when I was 40 years old, as I said, I'm 72 now. Mm-hmm. I went through a breakup with, I'm, I'm gay. I went through a breakup with my partner of 15 years and it was brutal. It was tough on me, really tough on me. And um, I, I wanted to, I, I had started meditating Actually, I started with Chogam Trungpa Rinpoche back in this in the um, in the when when did I start? 1974 in Boston. Wow, Dharma was still downtown, I think then. Wow. Yeah. Later moved to Newton, and I, I tracked with them all the way along. And um, so I I came in through what I think was initially your sangha, right? Yeah, yeah. no doubt. Yeah, and, and that's I I. I don't know if you remember the Dharma Datu that was in, in Cambridge, but it was right around the corner from my house. Oh. So on the way home from graduate school every night, I'd walk past this, this house, the big glass wall, and, and there were 30 or 40 people sitting there, just sitting there every night. And I thought, what the heck are those people doing? I mean, I, I guess I knew it was meditation. So I went in and the guy said, hey, Join us, sit down, I'll train you afterwards. So I started, <laughs> right? I started going to Dharma And dude, I got so into it. I this is where I've come to really truly believe in past lives, because there was some quality of recognition of the Dharma. Mm. 
I was so lit up by the Dharma, and and now I was thirty. I was thirty then, um, and I I wanted to know everything about it. So I really dove in. I read everything that the Chicken Kumpa read, wrote, and and every everything else I could get my hands on. And and then when I had this big breakup, I thought I I'm going to take a year off and meditate. I'm going to take a year off, and I'm going to plunge into this. And there were two possible places. Stephen, a year off from what? Oh, from my psychotherapy practice. So ah, I, okay, because you didn't yeah. mention it. So you, up all that time, you were being a psychotherapist. That's right. And I was. Uh-huh. I went to okay. graduate school at Boston College, and okay, I became a psychotherapist. I had a, a very good practice in Boston, a group practice um, in suburban Boston. I was trained in psychoanalytic psychotherapy, and um, and then when David and I broke up. Uh, I, I just needed, it was like a, a sea change in my life. It was a crossroads and I, I needed to move away from doing psychotherapy. And plus I was so into meditation at that point and, and also yoga. And so I had two possibilities. One was the, the Christian Episcopal monastery in Cambridge, right next to Harvard called the society of St. John the evangelist. And um, I had my name on a door there. I was going to become a monk, at least for a year. <laughs> and, wow. And then a buddy of mine, uh, my dear friend Michael, said, hey, dude, those monks all get overweight. Like, you, you don't want that. Come to this place called Kripalu out in the Berkshires, and I think you'll see it as another op- opportunity or option. So I did. We went out for a weekend. It just so happened that Amrit Desai, the, the guru, was there. Right. He, he was there the weekend you went? He was there that weekend. Okay. He was yeah. doing this special ceremony called Vandana. Uh, and so in Vandana, you walk on your knees up to the guru and he blesses you. And if you're lucky, you have a spiritual experience, which uh, I have, right? Uh, and I I knew nothing about what was supposed to happen. So it was quite a well, 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 what did happen? What, what, what did happen? And, and why would you describe it as a spiritual experience? Well, because I had... I was struck with a profound experience of bliss and rapture that went on uh-huh. for days, that went huh? on days or even mildly for weeks. Uninterrupted or, or, or intermittent? Um, uninterrupted for a while, but intermittent for, for those next two weeks. Everything was absolutely okay. I had this profound sense of well-being. And... Okay, let's even, let's bookmark that, Stephen. I want to talk about that some more in a little bit. Okay. Yeah. What I, is what is bliss and what is rapture and 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 yeah. what do they have to do with uh, your current state of mind? Right. If anything. So. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so I um that was interesting, right? And I I fell in love with Kripalu. I mean, it's uh. back in those days, it was a true ashram, right? So right. Right. There was there was ecstatic chanting every night. Mm. Everybody was there um, as a volunteer, so everybody was doing seva, which means selfless service. And, sure. and um, the, the guru was there. He and, lived there? Did Amrit Desai live there? Yeah, he lived there. He lived there. I arrived in 1989, mm. and he we, we bumped him out in 1994 when he, the whole scandal uh that's so predictable now erupted yeah um, and um and then 
uh, I decided to stay. That's a whole other story. Um, I, I, I loved this community because it, it truly was a community and decisions were made from group wisdom. And mm-hmm. there was a lot of communal um, openness to, they were very open to learning from me about the, the more Western points of view about psychological growth, spiritual mm-hmm. growth. And I had all that training in, in psychoanalytic theory. And so um, it was a really, really nice fit for me. So I stayed for a year and then I never... St- Stephen, what role did you have there at that point? Were you on the board? Were you a director of something or other? No, no, dude. I was I was chopping vegetables with everybody okay. else and so okay. happy to do it. Uh-huh. I, was, I was chopping vegetables and, 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 and very happy. Mm-hmm. Um, in those days, there was a a program that you entered through, it was called spiritual lifestyle training. And it was a month long training in yoga and meditation. And at the end of it, if you chose to, you could take a role of some kind, usually lower on the echelon in the organization and stay, you could join up. And, um, and, and I did. And because I, I was really fascinated by it. And, um, So it wasn't long before I started kind of climbing the hierarchy uh, into more roles of more responsibility. And and within not two, not more than a year or two was, was teaching and um, studying. And, uh, and again, that was 1989 going forward. And then when we, when the guru exited unceremoniously in 94, there was a group of us who never felt like we were there because of a guru. Mm-hmm. I never did. I never felt devoted to him, except that he was an exceptional, is an exceptional person in many ways, um, and exceptionally flawed, just like everybody else. Uh-huh. So I wasn't all that surprised when he turned out to have a little feet of clay going on there. Um, and so I stayed and a, a small group of us stayed and kind of rebuilt the organization, became a 501c3, became an educational organization, um, really focused on developing programming, really high quality programming and yoga and meditation and so forth. And um, I eventually founded our, a research institute that we had in Kripalu um, called the Institute for Extraordinary Living. We had an alliance with Harvard Medical School with, with the, the head of our research program was Sadhguru Khalsa, who's probably the world's most important yoga researcher. He was at Har- is at Harvard. Um, we had researchers from all over the world working with us. And so I founded and directed that program for quite a few years um, and um, got my hands into research and because we we decided, because when when I arrived at Kripalu, yoga was still pretty fringe. It was still pretty yeah. fringe, and we yeah. decided that in order to make it more mainstream, we had to have the imprimatur of of actual science. We had to really study well mm. what are the real effects and causes and dosages and so all that stuff. So, Isn't that sort of what meditation's going through now? Exactly what meditation has gone through. And and meditation is way ahead of yoga in this. I mean, largely because of John Kabat-Zinn and Mm -hmm. MBSR. If you 
apply to NIH, National Institutes of Health, as, as we have for grants, you'll see that there are hundreds and hundreds of grants a year given to Buddhist meditators to examine the, the real effects of, of mindfulness. And, well, uh, and not only that, but there's, there's really, really significant investments going into um, you know, the mindfulness meditation companies at the moment. It's uh, it's a it's a it's yeah. a big trend right now. That's a really good point, David. And you'll know more about that than I do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know Sharon, my friend Sharon knows a good deal about that, but mm-hmm. I'm beginning to see it show up in terms of apps and online resources and all of these new resources. For well, just just to frame it out a little bit, uh, calm and Headspace, which are the two sort of yeah. l- largest apps, are valued in the neighborhood of $2 billion each. God, I did, had no idea. I had no idea. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? That's amazing. And it's all online, uh, you know, yeah. mo- mostly dial in from your phone and, and get a guide to meditation or, or um, you know, different approaches. But, you know, a lot of, um, so, so you know, I think I, you may or may not know, but I started a company um in COVID called Dharma Moon, which is a, you know, online meditation, virtual training. And we do teacher, teacher training programs and all kinds of things. I, I only knew since you and I started chatting about this interview about it and then I investigated, but that sounds so cool. So this, this is actually part of that larger structure. Yeah. Dharma Moon is, uh, is meant to be a platform, um, uh, our, our sort of premise is when when the sun of Dharma shines, uh, all that is reflected uh, by the Dharma moon in terms of culture, society, uh, you know, everyday life is should reflect that uh, that clarity and that brilliance. So sometimes we say under the Dharma moon, you know, what, what's going on under the Dharma moon? And it includes music and art and culture. And, you know, it's very much spinning off from... Uh, Trungpa Rinpoche's vision of, um, you know, a, a kind of more comprehensive approach towards what meditation and it overlapping into everyday lives. So meditation, like we're going to be doing one meditation in comedy, meditation in sports, you know, wow. how does it leak? Uh, you know, yeah. like I, I, like you have been studying this stuff for 50 years and it's like, I didn't want to keep it in the balloon. I wanted it to leak out into, into right. the, Absolutely. Into, into the whole, whole culture. So that's what we're doing over there. And it's, um, but it is interesting that people are are really so. Our approach is just to just to lay that in there is going deeper. That's the model we're using now because everybody's getting a taste of mindfulness and so forth. Yeah. Yeah. But for example, most people think that's uh, mindfulness is the full palette of meditation technology. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's it's, not they don't right. Yeah, there's not even a sense of going from shamatha to vipassana. You know, like just any oh, kind of sense sure. of discovery. It's all stabilizing, relaxing, yeah. focusing, concentrating, becoming more productive, becoming more efficient. Uh-huh. Um, you know, so um, I think there's a tremendous moment here where people are going to get turned on, and then some of them that'll be enough. Some of them will skip away, and some will go, well, "What's you know? How do I go and go deeper into this?" And it might even revive yoga at this point. Oh, people yeah. might go from mindfulness into yoga rather than the other way around, which is how it was for so long. Exactly right. It it, yeah. it no doubt will because meditators very often eventually find yoga, even if that's wasn't there at the beginning. Because it's 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 such an allied 
science, if you will, to, mm. to meditation. You know, in in the genre, in the in the domain you're talking about, um, I started to get interested in the research function because I'm a classical pianist. And yeah, we got to talk I, about that stuff too. Yeah, yeah. I noticed that when I moved to Kripalu, it turns out that the the building had been a Jesuit monastery. I think I said and. There were two grand pianos in the basement that the Jesuits couldn't get out. So I got there <laughs> and I'm cutting vegetables during the day. And at night I'm sitting at the piano practicing. Wow. And I How noticed, cool is that? Oh, dude, it was so cool. <laughs> and, and people would show up with other instruments and we'd jam in the basement and people would show up with their voice and it was completely spontaneous, right? So I started to notice that my concentration skills and the, the whole range of, of piano skills were profoundly enhanced when I was practicing a lot of yoga and meditation. So yeah. I, I remember picking up the, the score, the piano score for the Messiah once about this time of year. And I sat down and all of a sudden I could sight read stuff that I never could do before. Whoa. And, yeah, and it, it got me really interested about what is this? How is it that meditation training and yoga training um, spills over into this domain of my life? And and is it true or did I just make this Yeah, up? yeah. You know, Stephen, and, our last guest before you was Robin Ford. Don't know if you know him or not. He's a famous guitar player. He played with Joni Mitchell and Miles Davis. Yeah. You know, and, and he was also a student of Trung Rinpoche. And he said, music is my dharma. Oh, absolutely. And, and then he gave a definition of, of um, art, uh, which he had imported from Trung Rinpoche, which is art is non-aggression. Oh, 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 I love that. i write that down. Yeah. That's a Rinpoche quote? Oh, yeah. Because, you know, dharma art was a big deal with him. I know. Uh, calligraphy I know. and flower arranging and yeah. dance and all kinds of things, theater. We're all part of the whole um, onset of him presenting the stuff in the West. And the whole idea was that um, that taking the egocentric structure out of the artist's, you know, setup of look at me, look what I'm doing and, you know, and just immersing yourself in the work and then absence of aggression. Oh, my God. I can't. I didn't know that. And I will tell you, David. We trained every summer in this program, we trained a group of highly adept musicians at Tanglewood Music Center. Kripala is right across the street from Tanglewood, which is right. the summer home of the Boston Symphony Orchestra. And we made an alliance with the Tanglewood Music Center such that we took a cohort of 30 or 40 of their brilliant students who came for an eight-week program every summer and trained them in yoga and meditation parallel with their music training. And then we studied the effects and we discovered that eight weeks or 10 weeks of this, the training that we were doing had a profound effect on their, on their music performance. But why? Well, precisely what you just said, I, excuse me, I used to teach them the Bhagavad Gita and, and I've written a lot about this, but you know, yeah the four pillars of the Gita, discern your Dharma, do it full out, let go of the fruits, that's number three, and turn it over to a higher power or whatever. So letting go of the fruits, letting go of the outcome, letting go of their grasping and craving for perfection 
Right. Which, which creates so much suffering for these young musicians. Yeah. At first, they were completely resistant to the idea of, of letting go of grasping the outcome. But eventually, even in eight or 10 weeks, they saw the way in which grasping the outcome actually negatively affects performance. And they started being able to let go of it. And so there was this flowering of their practice. Uh, uh, Stephen. Yeah. Alert here. Alert. <laughs> Has that been a book yet? Uh, no, no. Although I did write about it in, in the book that's just coming out in January. Um, I wrote a, a whole chapter on Marian, um, Marian Anderson and her, her concert at, at the Lincoln Memorial. And then I went into some of the studies about music that we did. Um, at Tanglewood, but no, it deserves to be a whole book. Yeah. Sure, I mean, you know, and workshops for musicians, you know, absolutely. Um, well, I know sure. some people. Some people have done a little bit with that, but I haven't seen a lot of it. Well, you know, who's done it is Madeline Bruiser, right? Sure, yeah. Who was, you know, a song a member from New York? Exactly. The and art of practicing. She wrote. Art of practicing, and right. I, uh, a friend of mine, teaches at a local college where I I do some classes for him every year with with music majors madeline bruiser comes in too uh-huh. and, uh, we we talk about um uh, about how to refashion your idea of what art is and music is uh, along the lines of dharma non-aggression letting go of outcome um and they eat it up oh my god these kids it's it's so freeing for them to be freed from the perfectionism that has dominated their careers yeah, and kept them in a box. Like discipline and ease. Discipline and ease. You don't, you, you don't usually hear those two words in the same sentence. No, usually. What is it in very tranquil and... Remember Sharon always talks about this. Anyway, discipline <laughs> and ease, essentially. Oh, yeah. tranquil and alert. That's what she... Um, yeah, she's got a way with words, definitely. Doesn't she? Yeah. It turns yeah. out there's the, the town motto of Barry, Massachusetts, where her retreat center is, is tranquil and alert, which is yeah. pretty much the whole game in Buddhism. It's right. kind of shamatha and vipassana together. Together, exactly. Right? Which is really, the, that's the way we were taught, is that those two, yeah. what people commonly call mindfulness practice is really shamatha vipassana. It's shamatha vipassana, right? It's both, because it's not just the focus on the breath and the stabilizing, but it's also noticing without judgment, what arises. I mean, the definition John Kabat-Zinn uses has those two elements in it. And I would right. just say, I just say that's, you know, classically that's Shamatha Vipassana. And what's interesting is mindfulness is neither of those actually. Mindfulness, you, you're a little bit of a scholar, right? Smirti in Sanskrit, right? Smirti, yeah. yeah. And we, which means remembering, recollection. Right. That's right, exactly. It's got a, and it's actually in a way a more subtle and nuanced quality. It's closer to more advanced teachings in a way. You just remember where you are. You just you you, right. you 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 recollect, and then, like Zogchen teaches, you recollect, and then you disown. That's the cycle. Well, you uh, know, when I came up, and and probably you too, mindfulness was kind of not a thing. Yeah, I mean, it, was, no. it was really shamatha vipassana that I learned, and I, yeah. I learned it first from Trungpa Rinpoche. Then I learned it again in a slightly different form at Barry from Sharon and Jack and Joseph. Um, and um, then I learned it again from Goenka 
And, and then along came this thing called mindfulness, which, which is, uh, I mean, I've never been able to quite pin it down. It, it's, I, I think it's, um, it's a vehicle for beginners maybe to enter in. It's um, digestible. Yeah, it's digestible. Yeah. And, um, but if you look at the definition of it, they snuck in a little bit of the, of the Vipassana element by adding the idea. For example, pure shamatha, which Tibetan yogis will do for months on end, just focus on the breath out and in. No sense of gap, no sense of larger awareness or noticing anything, just the focus on the breath. But, you know, this is a very long debate in the, in the Tibetan schools that, uh, the the Galukpas would say, "Why are you doing that practice? It's just going to turn you into a a, a lizard uh, or a pig." You know, yeah. they would call the Kagyu lineage pigs because they just sit and breathe. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> you know, but that vipassana, which for them also includes the idea of adding contemplation, yeah. insight. You know, um, you know, assessing the the quality of the experience in addition to just yeah. stabilizing the mind. So, you know, I think um, also they say if you if you just do pure shamatha, that there's an op, you, you can go into jhana states, absorption states, be, and the mind just becomes kind of dull. That's right. Well, yeah, right. you know, what's interesting about that, David, is that, so as you know, the, the yoga traditions have, have largely focused on concentration practice. Mm-hmm. And, um, and jhana states, right? Which brings us back to our bliss. We're going to get back to bliss. I'm going to. Yeah. I want to. I want to talk about bliss when you have a minute. We'll circle back <laughs> to that. But that's what you know. If you look at chanting, if you look at most of the techniques in yoga, right. are are actually about concentration mm. and, and absorption. And so when we, I was living in this community that was practicing almost entirely concentration practice, and mm. we didn't name it quite like that, but that's what was going on. And there was honestly very little wisdom practice, mm. very little reflection, very little looking at Anicca, Anatta, and Dukkha at, mm-hmm. at all. Mm-hmm. And so, and Freud was onto this. Freud, Freud's big critique of yoga was that it led to what he called an oceanic feeling. And what he meant by that was precisely bliss, rapture. Jhana states, absorption jhana, states. Jhana states, right. Yeah. And, and he said, this isn't, this isn't healthy. Um, this this avoids the very thing he was interested, in, which was really more investigation, right? Wow. And and looking at patterns and how patterns arise in their etiology. And so we discovered that at, at Krupala, which was you you have a community like that based on absorption, but without any wisdom practice, you're going to bump into some landmines. And and of course we did. Because there's a blindness. That comes oh, out. that's so beautifully stated. And of course, then if you look what happened with the community and with the teacher, if it, if that's all that's happening is some kind of um, you know blessing rituals and empowerment of those absorption states, mm-hmm. nobody really has clarity about um, any of the issues that might arise, and then they come up as a surprise. Absolutely, and and the the trouble with John states and simply concentration practice is that when you come back from those, the mind isn't fundamentally changed, right? Um, and, and this is precisely what the Buddha discovered under the rose apple tree when he was thinking 
under the Bodhi tree, Bodhi tree when he was thinking about the rose apple tree and 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 realized that essentially that concentration has got to be paired with wisdom and then he developed that whole new thread which if you read the yoga sutra there's vipassana is in there like the third book of the yoga sutra is is so called the the butipada which means um it's it's mostly about supernormal powers but if you look closely you'll see that it's bringing concentration to an examination of the whole realm of mind and matter of mm-hmm. mental states and and um uh, you know per- perception and so forth um it's in there but it it wasn't it wasn't really developed the way the buddha developed it yeah wow it's it's um we're sort of onto something which i think is a very current topic and that whole idea of going deeper um mm-hmm. Because it's no secret, you know, that our culture is oriented towards success of the individual perceived as like opting in and maximizing the capacity of one person to achieve something that looks like success from that point of view. And that we are miserable mm-hmm. as a culture at um, dissolving some of that and, and, and actually working with interdependent you know, kind of perception. And it's being, you know, kind of proven right now by what's happening in the country on so many levels, right? In the US. So many levels. The, I mean, and, and so if you have a wisdom practice, mm. you're looking systematically at impermanence, mm. you're looking at no self, and mm. you're looking at dukkha. And um and and you're gonna see the radical extent to which we're interdependent. And you know, and the whole human mind is is co-created in relationship with other minds. And um and and so this delusion that we have about remember the whole thing with Obama about you created that or you didn't mm-hmm. create that. Remember he was talking about the way in which we're interdependent. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There was a lot of reaction. Well, yes, I, I created that. Yeah. I created my own success. Right. Um this is something Sharon and I look at a lot when we teach mm-hmm. together. Is 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 looking at um, kind of carefully in the course of a retreat the way in which we've been influenced and co-created by our interactions with others. Yeah, I think this is um, maybe a sea change too. I'd love to hear your take on this in terms of the uh, the vehicle that brought these traditions to the West, and then the interaction with this sort of uh, Western culture it seems to be producing a new a new animal, um, and the hierarchical and patriarchal structures don't seem. I don't think they're going to make it. Yeah. Any thoughts uh, about that? I don't know. Not not no immediate associations to that, except that um, the uh, the the pandemic has certainly. Um, broken down all kinds of structures. And, you know, David, we've seen, uh, just to go back to Kripalu and respond to your question, um, what I noticed was that it's, it's probably true that the introduction of a good deal of structure, structured teaching, tradition, and so forth, was important 
in, in the early stages of formation and informing mm-hmm. people's practice and minds. But what we've noticed at Kripalu, once we, we threw a lot of that out, right? Uh-huh. And, and now what we're seeing is what emerges after years of practice, and I'm very interested in this now since I'm 72, I'm interested in, well, what actually was the effect of 40 years of practice, uh-huh. right? One, yeah. of the, one of the things I see is that my peers have all taken practice and integrated it in their own idiosyncratic way and come out on the other side usually having mastered some art or science Mm. or some form that isn't explicitly meditation or yoga. Oh yeah. But that's why I, when I talk about writing, that's my form. Like I'm, I'm really interested in mastery of that. And it's, it's kind of like the boat has crossed the river and and now you don't need the boat anymore. Um, But there's, there's this way in which fruition, and I'm really interested in fruition right now, um, <sighs> eventuates in 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 mastery um, mm. that goes beyond form in in huge ways. So, Stephen, I can't exactly explain this, but while you were just saying the last thing you were saying, your mo- your mother came into my mind. Oh, interesting, interesting. <laughs> yeah. And I, and here's what the formulation of it was: Is she on this shore or the other shore? Uh, the, other one, the other one. Yeah, your mother was a sort of on the other shore kind of energy, right? That's right. But yeah. here's the thing with my mother mm. is that she knew she was a poet from a young age, right? Mm. She, she started writing poetry in college and mm. honestly wasn't very good. Um, I mean, who cares about that really? But she um, fell prey to the uh, the critics and um, she fell prey to her own narcissism to a certain extent about how wounded she was by the criticism of her poetry. And she stopped writing until old age. And then she went back into it. She excavated it. She pulled it out. She started writing again. She published three books. Um, at that point, she was ready to let go of what anybody else thought or didn't give, a, you know, a rat's ass about what anybody thought of her poetry. She, that was her voice and she was going to have it. And I just love that. And by the end, she was blind and deaf. She was practically in, she was practically in, um, what's the syndrome called? Cutoff syndrome. Um, Anyway, in, in that state, she published several books of poetry. She did, she wrote a, a family memoir complete with pictures. She was blind. How how long did she, how old was she when she passed away? She died at 87, Uh but she was not leaving this life until she had spoken. Right. 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 And I I love her for that. That was just such a triumph after having been really having suffered at the hands of, of critics and, Mm. um, and, and, and thereby not really owning her own voice. Um, what what a powerful memorial! Yeah, totally, totally. Uh, and, and and also sense of journey because I know a lot of your books are you're writing about a sense of journey, aren't you? You're you're Absolutely. really going. You how how where does somebody start? What's their unique contribution? 
how are they going to um, manifest that? And uh, boy, it sounds like your mom really crossed a river. Well, it's interesting, David, because I in in the chapter I did I wrote a chapter about this for mm. my new book. It didn't new book. In, yeah, it didn't get in the new book. It'll be in the next one. But oh, okay. I paired my mother with with Sergei Rachmaninoff because oh, when, wow. when yeah <laughs> when Rachmaninoff was a young man, um, he was a brilliant student at the Moscow Conservatory. Mm. He won all the medals, and mm-hmm. when he wrote his first. Um, symphony or was it his first piano concerto I, I guess it must have been his first piano concerto it was absolutely panned by the critics and it devastated wow. him and wow. it devastated him he went into a three-year depression and this was around the time when Sigmund Freud was out there doing psychoanalysis it was very young as a science but one of Sigmund Freud's students took Rachmaninoff on as a patient and they did full-on psychoanalysis, and Rachmaninoff worked his way through his clinging to his aspiration to be loved and and his aspiration to be valued. And he basically said, I, I'm just gonna do my thing. I'm gonna wow. I'm gonna do my voice, right? And then he wrote the second piano concerto, which of course is the most one of the most brilliant things in Western music. And it was a huge triumph because he'd allowed himself to speak his own authentic, precisely idiosyncratic voice into the world. Now, that is a mother of a story. Yeah. Well, first of all, let's just start off like, you know, you know, three guys walk into a bar. Uh, Rachmaninoff is a patient of Sigmund Freud's student. I mean, like you had me at hello on that one. (laughs) Such a great way to start it. It turns out that this guy, um, who had been trained by Freud, was also a musician. He was an amateur musician. <gasps> what was and his so, name? Do you know? Do you know his name? I am blocking on it right now. It'll it'll probably we'll, come. To me. We'll Google it later. That's really we'll interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so he loved Rachmaninoff for wrestling deeply with his own creativity and his mm-hmm, own mm-hmm. Um, and his in his own voice. And um, so they often talked about music. Because this yeah. guy could intelligently, uh, and there was a great scene later on after Rachmaninoff died, when the the gentleman who was his analyst, who was I believe Jewish, was in Israel uh, for a big concert, and um, they were playing Rachmaninoff's second piano concerto, and and at the end he was asked to rise, and and the conductor said, "This was dedicated to this dude right here." Wow. Who got Rachmaninoff out of his depression? And um, oh. yeah, it is what a great story that is. Story. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, it's um, I don't re- know if you remember this, but the um, Bullwinkle show, which oh, was a cartoon cool. show on television, but do you remember Mr. Peabody's Wayback Machine from Bullwinkle show? Yes, I absolutely do. Yeah, way back. Yeah, he and Sherman, who was a Dog would go back in time, and to they would they would have been there when when at that concert you know in one in an episode you know and you I just love that premise of like would I love to be a fly on the wall of something like that you know so that wow. in, in in the yoga tradition um that would be cool oh, no in Buddhism the um the eight worldly winds um. 
what are they? Um, uh, praise and blame, fame and right. review, and right. so forth. Yeah, uh, that was what my mom got caught in. What Rachmaninoff caught in, got caught right. into fame and repute. And at the end of the story, of course, people went back and looked at his first either symphony or, or concerto and said that was really pretty good. It took a mm. while for people mm. to catch up with him. But, um, and then the second one was the monster. The second one was fantastic. Uh, the, the second famous one, one, right? The famous one that you yeah. will recognize even now because Rachmaninoff was just a, a cornucopia of melody. I mean, melody yeah. just sprung from this guy, wow. right? And and he there, he went through a phase in Western music where he was looked down on, yeah, because he was such a melodist, and that was looked at as very outre, right? A little red. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Now, Stephen, okay, so you're a classically trained pianist, mm-hmm. right? And at some point, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna think you might have considered that as your career, right? You must I, have. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You're a classically trained yoga teacher, right? Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, you're an author. Yep. Um, did you ever compose music? No, but you left one out, which I haven't told you about. I'm also a classically trained ballet dancer. Um, Whoa! I, yeah, I uh, <laughs> I got into ballet. I I went to Amherst College, which was yeah. all men at the when I went. And right. Its sister school, which is Smith, had right. a ballet program, and the the woman I was dating was into ballet, and I got big time into ballet, and I was immediately drawn to the classical forms. Right. You've mentioned classicism. I I love classical forms. And so um, I joined a dance company, the Minnesota Dance Theater, which was a great, brilliant company in the Midwest. And I had a whole phase of didn't last for many years. But um, but the interesting thing for me was, what is it about classicism? I don't know. But and and you're a psychotherapist, which would be the fifth one that we didn't reiterate. That's right. Which is maybe became classical at a certain point. It didn't mm-hmm. certainly didn't start that way. It was it was it was revolutionary when it started, right? It was, but psychoanalysis is is a classical tradition. Now it is, right? Now it is. Now it is, and and so it has. And would, are you a psychoanalyst or a therapist? I'm a therapist, but okay. I, I studied psychoanalytic theory and and um, used it in my practice. I've been practiced for thirty years now. But but you were a practicing uh, psychotherapist before your. It's interesting. There was that moment you talked about, kind of your shift when you broke up with David. That um, that you, your life went from being a psychotherapist to more um, relation to the spiritual practices. Yeah, and that, that was your that was your shift moment, huh? That was the shift moment. That was honestly that was the moment, and you probably know this, where there was so much suffering that. Mm-hmm the only thing to do was to pay attention to it and to dig into it and to understand mm. it. And, mm. and Buddhism gave me all of these handles for understanding suffering. Right. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, I, I told you, I, Oh, I didn't tell you I went to seminary. I went to through Episcopal divinity school at a certain point. And it's interesting that the Western, the Western religious traditions uh, well, there there is some real 
spiritual training in there, but it's it's hard to get out of the current day church. Mm, mm. So, for example, when I went to Episcopal Divinity School, it was mostly about theological. It was mostly about theology, very wow. little about practice, about practice, about meditation, about contemplation. Sure. So when I discovered Buddhism, I was like, oh my God, this is this is a, a cornucopia of actual um, practice that I can do to make myself feel better. Well, and do you know why people say God bless you when you sneeze? I don't, actually. Because there's a gap and the devil could get in. Oh, that's... <laughs> And has, I'm sure. <laughs> so the, the idea of gap or non-conceptual mm. mind mm. Uh, would be probably touched in those traditions, maybe as some kind of mystical experience or, you know, transcending experience. But, you know, I, I, I don't know too many people other than the Buddhists who granularly experience that space. Yeah, I mean, and actually, have created a whole universe on a, a head of a pin in that space. You know, if you look deeply, you will find a number of Christian mystics, uh, like the great, the cloud of unknowing, and right. um, who who did, but or or even in our day, Thomas Merton, you know, was yeah. a great a great writer, and and finally, well, you, you, you know, Trung Rinpoche met him, right? I didn't know that. No, I yeah, didn't. that was in, like a meeting of remarkable. Individuals that they, they actually had a conversation. Was that when? Was that when Merton went to the east, or was that when? No, into the west. I, I'm not sure where that happened, and that's another thing to Google. But I'm pretty sure yeah. that they actually had a moment, and he had a high regard for him. And um, you know, it's interesting because he was Rinpoche was looking for people outside of the Buddhist world who manifested some of those yeah. same principles. Yeah. He was very open to. Thinking, how, you know, how how could uh, how could that happen without that kind of formal training? And the funniest thing about it is, if you go into any of the um, any of the advanced Buddhist teachings, the lower trainings, even though they're foundational to being able to take it on, get in the way. Really? Well, I mean, think about the Heart Sutra. Yeah, yeah. You know. No form, no feeling, no perception, no consciousness, right. no eye, no ear, no nose. Everything I, what is basically the whole heart could be just said, like, remember everything I taught you? Forget about it. Forget about it. Forget <laughs> about it. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you know, uh, because it's saying that those things don't give you any kind of uh, standing. So what is being pointed to, which in the heart sutra is sort of the notion of shunyatar, emptiness, right? Has to in a sense, unbuckle, unseat those other things which give you more conceptual hardware to, to, to work with, uh, more, diagno more diagnostic capability, yeah. more, more understanding. So as you know, as you get sort of further, um, they, they, in the, like the Ati teachings, the Dzogchen teachings, they say sometimes even it's just like grunts, like wow. the profound utterance is like, a, uh, you know, it's, there's just nothing to say that would take the, that conceptual mind on, onto more of a, a, of a journey. You know, and they, they call it, they call it old dog. Wow. Ati teaches something old state of old dog. Like there's nothing more to learn. That's where Walt Whitman went. Remember ah. I'm my barbaric yap over the whole world. Um, yeah, no, see, this is really interesting because this is where you, you come out eventually inexorably. Um, 
into this into that space um, where you're exploring, you know, Keats called it um, negative capability, right? The, John Keats, the great English poet, called it, he, he said toward the end of his life, which only lasted 26 years, he entered this state where he was exploring living in the mystery and living in the dark and living in the not knowing and writing from that space, he called it negative capability. And he he wrote his last great six poems from that space and also wrote about that space, negative capability. Um, and of course, his last poems were his greatest poems. He he said to his girlfriend, Fanny, he said, these, Fanny, these poems have killed me because uh-huh. he brought everything he had into this poetry and he was already dying of tb but um negative capability well Stephen, what's it like when you and bob thurman get together oh my god uh i, I haven't been in a convo like this with him but it would ah. certainly be fun <laughs> you know it's um in a very you know compressed period of time you can you know travel the multiverse uh, in, in a way that I think it would be, I mean, if I had to engineer like soiree or something like that, I would try yeah. to put the two of you together in a oh, room and then come oh. back four or five days later, you know? Well, I, I hear about Bob a lot from Sharon, who works yeah, with him. Sure. It's written with him. And yeah. of course, he's been in Kripalu, but it's strangely, Kripalu in the day before COVID, when we were fully up and operating. Right. Sure. I mean, we were seeing 650 people a night. And, yeah, and you could have like well, Bessel van der Kolk was in one room, and Bob Thurman was over here. Sure, sure. Sharon was over here, and so I didn't always get to play with my my peers, right. like you. <laughs> right. right. We yeah, we just pass in the hallways there. In the hallways, I know. Yeah. But now the word erudition comes up as um, I mean, it's an er, er, erudite is an erudite word to begin with, it's which is kind of uh, ironic, but. Yeah. You know, uh, tracking you down like if I were a hunter, you know, I'm not sure I'd know where to look. Yeah. I would go to the country called Eriodicia and I'd say, has anybody seen Stephen lately? And <laughs> what is he up to now? That's what I'd want to know. So I'm going to just throw that to you. What are you up to now? Where You said you're interested in fruition. You have a new book coming out. Is that right? Yeah, I have a new book coming out. The, I started a book, David, before COVID called The, the Dharma of Difficult Times. Mm. And I, I was interested in the way in which, um, well, I was going through a difficult time. Let's just put it right out there. Uh, I was going through a difficult um, time with, a, and I don't want to go into detail, but with a major person in my professional life. And I, I thought, I'm going to write about this. So um, I started writing about it. And, and that's where Rachmaninoff came up. I wrote about Rachmaninoff, and I wrote about um, Ignatius Loyola, and I wrote about Darwin, and um, I wrote about Jean-Pierre de Cassade, who was a great 17th century mystic, by the way, who who falls into that mystic category of Christians. And then COVID happened, and the so much of the mask was ripped off of Western capitalism, and mm. and we began to be so much more conscious of structural racism mm-hmm. and the and the the urgent need for social justice and 
I was touched by all that. And I decided I was going to rewrite the book and focus on that. So the, the new book um, is an examination of the way in which the Bhagavad Gita, the great scripture of Arjuna's self-odyssey, odyssey right. toward self-realization, the way in which the Gita um, informs our struggle with xenophobia and racism and hatred and hatred of the other. So I, I track it from, I start with Gandhi and then I move to Thoreau and then I move to Harriet Beecher Stowe and then to a great civil war hero who's unknown, but brilliant. Um, and then to Sojourner Truth and then to Marian Anderson and then to Martin Luther King and then to a current day activist named Ruby Sales. So essentially I track the effect of the Bhagavad Gita on this whole trajectory, starting in 1830 in Concord with Thoreau, all the way up to the present day in, in the Deep South in Alabama. Um, and um, this book kicked my butt, David. You cannot even believe it. it is it finished? Yeah, it's finished. It'll be out on January 11th. Oh, good timing, because the podcast will come out right around then. So what's the name of it? It's called The Dharma in Difficult Times. Okay, and it's on Hay House? Publishing. It's on Hay House. It's with Hay House. Yep. Right. Okay, everybody, look, be looking out for that. Yeah, thanks, thanks. I don't it's think on, times are going to get much easier between now and then, so I think you're still going to be good. I think it, I think it, it landed, but um, it's interesting. I started it before the world fell apart, but then I got interested in, hey, the world has fallen apart many times. Yes, know, it has. In the last many, many centuries, and... And each of our worlds has fallen apart many times. Yeah, and and falls apart every day. <laughs> and, you know, but I have an I, I have an idea for you. Let's reboot uh, Peabody, Professor Peabody, and Sherman. You'll be right. Professor Peabody. Okay. I'll I'll play Sherman. I'm going to get these glasses on. I love it. What do you think? Okay. Perfect. Yeah. (laughs) And we'll visit these places. We'll do animated versions of ourselves, and you'll you'll be you'll be uh, you know leading uh, the audience through me uh, on these trips to to see who was this person in the Civil War who was so influential. I'll ask some very innocent but you know kind of provocative kind of questions, and then you'll have a chance to thread the whole thing together. And we'll do a Netflix series on it. What do you think? I'm I'm so totally in. I the idea of you as Sherman just throws me into paroxysms. I'm telling you right now. Gee, Stephen, I didn't even know that there. You know, I didn't even know Sigmund Freud had a dog. You know? <laughs> That's, That's so funny. Great. Well, you know what? It makes me think of Sharon's little um, thing where she's portrayed as a dog with a little purse. Have you seen that? No. Oh, okay. It's, it's Sharon Salzberg. Yeah, it's um, it's absolutely adorable, and her voice comes out of this little dog. And where is it on her website? Yeah, you can go on her website. You can find it. She okay. she appears in these different situations that cause suffering, and ah. dog discovers mindfulness, and it's it's adorable. It really is. Well, you know, it must be a coming thing because I don't. Do you know who Duncan Trussell is? Have you bumped into? So Duncan, you know, I've been 
doing my dual identity as a Dharma teacher and guitar player, you know. And so yeah, yeah. I've been, I just was playing with Krishna Das um, at the Ramdas retreat in Maui. Yeah. I just got yeah. back on a red eye yesterday, actually. Yeah. And, and um, there is um, a young, er, you know, a gentleman who joined in that satsang uh, named Duncan Trussell. And he's a podcaster and mm-hmm. a comedian. And quite quite well known in his zone, and he has a very interesting group of um, you know he's sort of uh, Captain Trips for a whole new generation in a way, and very brilliant and very lovely. And um, so we talk all the time about meditation and so forth. And he had did a Netflix series called Midnight Gospel, okay. And it is eight episodes, and he also had his mom on it, which is sort of a reminiscent thing. On the last episode, it's and they were live podcasts with these people that then they then animated. And in episode six, I appeared as myself, a cartoon version of me, David, the meditation teacher. His character was an octopus. Oh, my God. I love he said, can you can you help me out here? And he was all tangled up in himself. And I just sort of helped unscramble un, un him. So I think this idea of the animation is uh, and, you know, uh, Headspace uses that as part of their yes, thing. So, right. yeah, I mean, it's there's some way for um, people to what's interesting about your I mean, it's just from my perspective, but your erudition is so deep, Stephen. Look, like I, I you know, you're a world class erudite. Well, if it was erudites anonymous. You'd, I'd have to register you in. You 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 end up there if you're looking for answers because there's so many great there's so many great minds who have delved into this territory from different kinds of through different doorways, and it's that's what's fascinated me all along, really. Wow, I think that's a por- that's a self portrait that I is is a pretty good note to end on. Yeah. That somehow you've tied together uh, what could be taken to be very distinct disciplines. They could be, and yeah. you found a thread through it. So if if now we're at the last moment and um, and somebody says, Stephen, <laughs> sum it up, <laughs> the thread. What's the golden thread? The thread is the human the human mind. I mean, it's, it's, it's the mind of everybody in, in, you know, in, in yoga, it's called samapati or coalescence, which means we're all made of the same stuff. And that's what joins us together, coalescence. And do you take it with you? Where do, where does it go when you, your mortal body perishes? What uh, happens to that coalescence? It's, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. We're already united. And um, when when you leave this body, um, you simply join that at a deeper level. Yeah, the subtle consciousness. The subtle consciousness, that's right. Well, Stephen, this was so much fun. Totally fun, Dave. I knew it would. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, you know, there's and there's threads we could have, like, you know, we could go down the Brahmaputra or down the Ganges yeah. or, or down the Mississippi River, I'm sure, too. Um, but I just want to thank you on behalf of all of our uh, Dharma Moon community and and the listeners who listen to the Creativity, Spirituality, and Making a Buck podcast. Uh, everybody will will post the link to Stephen's book on on the site, so you'll have a shot at getting it and pre-ordering it. Is it up for pre-order now? It is. Yeah, it's on Amazon. Yeah. Great. Okay. So uh, hopefully we can have you back on at some point and. Um, we're doing all kinds of webinars and things, uh, you know, building that platform. So definitely we'll, we'll get back together again sooner than this has been. 
That's great, David. I'm so appreciative. This was totally fun. We'd like to thank you for watching CSM. We'd like to thank you for tuning in again. And we'd like to thank everyone that be here now, like Corey and JR, and anyone who helped somehow. And if you'd like to see more of David's interviews, you can tune in at www.beherenownetwork.com slash David. Thanks for watching, everybody. Just a couple quick announcements here at the end. Learning how to play the guitar. It's going to get better. That's not really the announcement. Rachmaninoff's therapist's name was Nikolai Dahl. The eight worldly concerns, which were very briefly mentioned, not all eight were mentioned. There's a lot of lists in Buddhism. <laughs> this one in particular really cuts right through, and it can be a challenging contemplation. But due to hope and fear, one could say, and our habitual attachment, and aversion to these four pairs, we stay locked in cyclical bewilderment, also known as samsara. They are gain and loss, praise and blame, happiness and suffering, fame and insignificance. Good luck contemplating that. In the foundational practice in Buddhism, to see these things clearly, is the shamatha vipassana, which is also kind of called mindfulness meditation these days. And if you're interested in mindfulness meditation for youngsters, well, there's some very good news. A recent graduate of one of our mindfulness meditation teacher training programs, Debbie Nutley, has written and released a book called Penguin's Breath. Congratulations, Debbie. We're proud of you. And uh, if anybody out there would like a gift of a book to help their children get into mindfulness... It's a good one to pick up. You can find it on the internet if you search Debbie Nutley, Penguin's Breath. And it's the story of a penguin. Baby, child penguin. Finds the power of its breath to help it overcome obstacles. Also, we have an upcoming David's View episode, or a recording session. We're going to record a bunch of them. So if you have any questions that you'd like me to ask David... Please shoot me an email at K at dharmamoon.com or leave a comment on this video in the YouTubes and I'll see it. And we'll talk to David about it very soon. Well, there you go, folks. That's our episode. We'd like to thank you for watching. May you be safe, healthy, and happy and at ease. All the best. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? 
Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H E L P.com slash be here now.